Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my works too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I may love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. This morning, we spoke of the ongoing need to emphasize even the most venerable dogmatic truths about Our Lady, her perpetual virginity. Because in no age, much less our own, which so misunderstands and devalues virginity, in every age this can be taken for granted, even seemingly on the part of some bishops of the Church. We considered what St. Ignatius of Antioch wrote when the apostles had only just departed the earth, when he wrote to the Ephesians that Mary's perpetual virginity, along with Christ's birth and death, were the three great mysteries to be proclaimed, predicanda, therefore an essential part of the kerygma, or good news of the gospel. And that's how our litany calls her Virgo predicanda, the virgin who is to be preached, Cardinal Newman, in his sermons on the title of Our Lady, Virgo Predicanda, said that we preach what is not known, that it may become known. Preaching is a gradual work. And thus were the heathen brought into the church gradually. And in like manner, the preaching of Mary to the children of the church has grown gradually. First, she was preached as the Virgin of Virgins. And then, as mother of God. And then, as glorious in her assumption. And then, as immaculate in her conception, says Cardinal Newman. Now, Cardinal Newman is writing in the 19th century. So, it's curious that he considers the question of Mary's assumption settled before that of her immaculate conception. Even though her Immaculate Conception was dogmatically defined in 1854 and her Assumption was dogmatically defined only 60 years later, after his death, in 1950. If the virginity of Mary was the first dogmatic fact about the Blessed Mother, then the divine maternity of Mary is the second. Now, we don't have a dogma about the maternity of St. Elizabeth. There's no controversy, you see, about the paternity of St. John the Baptist. So why is it necessary to declare a dogma concerning the maternity of Mary? It's an historical fact. No one doubts it. But what of the paternity of Jesus? That is an article of fact and faith, but faith first. This morning we paused to consider the necessity of the dogmatic teaching on the virginity of Mary, as Cardinal Newman puts it, because it convalidates the fact that Christ is the Son of none but God. Still, the paternity of God over Jesus of Nazareth should scarcely need a dogma, concerning the maternity of Mary, should it? 
Not to establish the historical fact of Christ's birth, no. For none doubts that Jesus is indeed the son of Mary. The witnesses declared it. The Christ child wasn't delivered by a stork, after all. Only if the issue of Christ's divine identity were to be challenged, would the question of Mary's maternity in any way come to his defense. After all, it was to her that the Almighty entrusted his own beloved Son. Is it not her prerogative then, and also her duty, to defend the integrity of her child? Indeed it is. And so we come to a favorite designation of Mary. You hear it from some of the saints. They call her the hammer of heretics. Time and again in church history, we see how challenges to Christ's identity are resolved by clarifications about the identity of Mary. If you want to get Jesus right, it seems, you first have to get Mary right. You really cannot get to Jesus without passing first through Mary. And this is as true of his enemies as it is of his friends. To Jesus through Mary. Cardinal Newman applies to Mary the litany's title, Tower of David. Since this tower was built by David for defensive purposes. And just as David is a figure for Christ, so is his tower a figure denoting his protective mother because she so signally fulfilled the office of defending her divine son from the assaults of his foes. Cardinal Newman goes on to note how those Protestant countries which threw off devotion to her four centuries ago have in our own century also given up their own belief in his divinity. In my sophomore class at Pius, I used to display a meme on the board which shows an ancient uh, fresco of the Blessed Mother striking the devil in the face and underneath the caption, Hail Mary, full of grace, punch the devil in the face. It's not too irreverent, I think. The students readily appreciate the point. To Mary, we can turn in every instance to protect the truth about her divine son. After all, God willed to entrust to her the integrity of his son, to her maternity. And so it is not the maternity of Mary per se at all, which is the object of the dogma of the divinity, of the divine maternity of Mary. It's not her maternity at all. It's, it's her son's divinity. That's why we refer to it as the dogma of the divine maternity that she is the mother of no ordinary child, but of God, made man. Jesus himself claimed to be God. Such a claim must either be true or false. There cannot be a middle road. That would be insanity. As for his own position, he readily used the divine name, I am. He explicitly made the claim to be divine, And he did the works of God, such as forgiving sins. And finally, he rose victorious over death. Nothing less 
then the true divinity of Christ explains the faith of the Church and the triumph of Christianity. It was precisely for his claims that he was crucified as a blasphemer by the Jewish authorities, who at least took his claims seriously enough, though they disbelieved them, and the penalty for blasphemy is death. Many of our contemporaries, unfortunately, do not even have this integrity. While claiming to be Christians, they work desperately to domesticate Christ, preferring to lump him together with the other great personages of history, worthy of our imitation or emulation, but certainly not obedience to his commands, and especially not when they are difficult or against the or countercultural. But Christ must be who he claimed to be, or he must be crucified and dismissed as a charlatan or a fraud. For a con man is not worthy of emulation. Either Jesus is God, as he claims, or he cannot even be considered a great man of history. Chesterton summed it up best when he said, Christ is either Lord, liar, or lunatic. You cannot have it all all the ways. With him, there's no hedging your bets. Or as Blaise Pascal puts it, man must wager, because being alive, you are already in it. But too many in history have tried to hedge. In the Christological controversies of the early Christian centuries, there were always those who denied either one or other or both of his natures, or they sought to separate them or confuse them or to see one as subsumed by the other. Getting Christ right was paramount for the church in those years. But finding the means to do so proved elusive. Until they fixed on the very one that the Almighty chose for his child's protection, Mary Most Holy, she provided the solution. There was no controversy in calling Mary the Christ-bearer, Christotokos in Greek, Mater Christi, as we say in our litany, Mother of Christ, But as soon as we called her Theotokos, the God-bearer, there were those who balked, the heretics as it turned out. Although Christ is possessed of two natures, human and divine, Jesus is one person, and he is a divine person. And Mary is his mother. She is not the mother only of a part of Christ. She is the mother of the whole Christ. She gave birth to a person who is a divine person. Defending the divinity of Christ required establishing her divine maternity as the touchstone and litmus test of orthodoxy in the faith. She is the mother of God in Christ. We cannot deny her this title without also denying the dogma of the Incarnation. As Newman puts it, Is it more mysterious that Mary should be the mother of God than that God should have become man? 
hardly. And so the Council of Ephesus in the year 431 declared Mary Theotokos, God-bearer, Mater Dei in Latin, Mother of God, as we've prayed uh, in the Roman canon since long before the Council of Ephesus, Sancta Dei Gentrix, Mother of our Lord and God, Jesus Christ. Sancta Dei Genetrix does not mean that Mary is the source of God, far from it, but that she is the source of God for the world. The word is eternally generated of the Father before all things were made. Indeed, as we profess in our creed of the word, through him all things were made, visible and invisible, including Mary. But Mary is, by divine predilection, his mother. The litany even calls her Mater Creatoris, the mother of the creator, the mother of the creating word, the mother of the word incarnate. Since he is God, she is the God-bearer, the one who gives God to the world, the one through whom God gives himself to us. We receive God from her, her hands, her will, her heart, her yes. That yes is the most momentous moment in the whole history of the world. It is the answer to Eve's no, but it is more powerful exponentially for us. Eve was known as the mother of all the living, but then introduced death to all who lived. Mary is the mother of all those reborn in Christ who introduced eternal life to all who were dead in their sins. She is the gateway of salvation, its portal. Janua Celi, as the litany calls her, heaven's gate. Through Christ, humanity is divinized. That's why he is often depicted in red, cloaked in blue, humanity covered with divinity. Mary is then depicted in blue, cloaked in red. As we pray in the offertory of the Mass, by the mystery of this water and wine, grant that we may be made partakers of his divinity who vouchsafe to become a partaker in our humanity. There is in all this a mirabile commercium, a great marvelous exchange or commerce. He takes our humanity so that we may partake of his divinity. Every year around Christmas, a truly dreadful hymn makes its round through modernist parishes, especially in this country. It asks repeatedly, Mary, did you know? The inference clearly is that she did not. Let's hear what Newman would have to say to that. 
in preaching on her title, Sedes Sapientia, Seat of Wisdom, Newman says that the Blessed Mother is owed this title, not simply because her son, whom Scripture calls the Word and the Wisdom of God, comes from her, was carried in her womb, held in her arms, and enthroned on her lap, and being thus the human throne of him who reigns in the kingdom. But moreover, because during his infancy, he was subject to her rule and tutelage. Years when, from his conversation of things past and present and future, they must have accrued to the mother so great and so profound a knowledge of things when he enlightened her in all those points of doctrine which have first been discussed and then settled in the church from the time of the apostles until now. She knew it all. Mary, did you know? She knew what 20 centuries of councils had yet to work out. All that is obscure, writes Newman, all that is fragmentary in Revelation, would as far as the knowledge is possible to man be brought out to her in clearness and simplicity by her Son, who is the light of the world, and also of the events which are to come. Moses had the privilege, now and then, from time to time, of engaging the Lord, but Mary for 30 continuous years saw and heard face to face God, able to ask any question which she wished to explain from him, who being the eternal God could neither deceive nor be deceived. We fly to thy patronage, O Holy Mother of God. Despise not our petitions in our necessities, but deliver us always from all dangers, O glorious and blessed Virgin. Amen.